Welcome to RPGnomics, a project of Pain in the Dice Games that takes a hobbyist and part-timer's view of the economics of the RPG industry. Kind of. Hi there, I'm Josh Heath, Chief Operations Officer of High Level Games. I ran HLGCon, if you want to talk about economic disasters, and have written for a number of different role-playing game companies. And I'm just kind of vaguely interested in economics and the transfer of product from place to place and how that sort of works. So. Yeah. And I mean, you've overseen projects more or less from soup to nuts. You've done Kickstarters, you've run them, you've done them for both personal projects and things tied to your firm. You're trying stuff. You're also a podcaster. So you understand kind of the Patreon angle. You've done some paid GMing. You got, you got a bunch of angles here. Yeah. I definitely come at RPG nomics from a lot of different places. That's fair. And I'm Terry Robinson. I like to buy things. I am fascinated by the economics of the industry. And I think a lot of the arguments that are had are often slightly misplaced. And my goal is to investigate whether I do not understand it, whether others have a skewed view of things, and maybe what is coming next in this industry. So uh, Josh, what are we talking about today? So today's topic is going to be Terry's experience trying to get rid of reprints, and it went really well. Uh, so Terry, can you explain to us what happened and why you would do such a thing as this? Uh, so the background on this, a couple of years ago, I saw that there were a few eBay sellers selling reprints, the uh, Noble Knight games probably being one of the most noticeable of them. And for instance, a $25 book on RPG for a print plus PDF for the standard edition was being sold for $40 plus shipping. I didn't know if they were just putting them up because it was only one copy. And when one copy disappears, you don't know if the seller just took it down or did something else with it. Later, I was trying to finish my collection of Planescape for Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition, and I noticed that reprints were being sold, and instead of it just being like, oh, this is a hypothetical thing, I would go to a listing and it would say, Planes of Law, Perfect Bound, Authorized Reprint, 10 copies, and it would list four remaining of 10, implying that six had sold. So I'm like, oh, this is no longer theoretical. And a lot of those original box copies cost anywhere from uh, $15 to, to 40, depending on what it was. And these were selling for 55 to $60. So like a, a 35 to 50% markup. So could you give a definition of reprint just so that we're on the same page of that? Uh, so one of the interesting things that happened during the 90s is that box copies of games were very popular. And this would be something where you would buy the Planes of Chaos supplement. And instead of it being one traditional hardbound book, what it would be would be several saddle stapled, which is to say you take a whole bunch of big pieces of paper, staple them in the center, and fold it over. That is the technology used in most non-perfect bound hardback books, and I can't wait to do the Terry Just Talks About Books episode of this. But if you've ever gotten a 20-page pamphlet that had a staple in the middle of it and it was folded around that, that is a saddle-stitched copy or a, or a saddle-bound copy. They would put a whole bunch of these in the cardboard box, and you would sell that at a game store. And it did a couple of things. One, the fact that it was in a cardboard box, you could include arbitrary sized content to it. If you wanted to include a CD with it, you could. For instance, Player's Guide to the Outland included it. You can include little cardboard tokens that you could set up. Dragon Mountain had dozens or hundreds of those or whatever. You could have large fold-out maps that could be on a piece of C-size or D-size paper or something like that. But otherwise, hardback books were comparatively expensive to make compared to those inexpensive box copies. Box copies, the cardboard was generally made from very cheap pulp, so it was easy to do as opposed to uh, maybe the chipboard that you would use in hardback. 
So after a time, Wizards of the Coast licensed to have reprints done of those through vendors like DriveThruRPG, which at the time I think was RPG Now. And for a, a, a fee, you could have a Perfect Bound reprint sent to you. What Perfect Bound means is instead of it being saddle stitched, it is a whole bunch of individual sheets a thick strip of glue is done to make a case block, and then that is put in a hardback or a softback in terms of form. They have standard cover pages and so on. But uh, so instead of getting that original box, you were getting a book that was an attempt to digitize and compile all of that. In many cases, these were original copies that had been scanned, reconstructed into a book, and then published, and then OCR had been run on it. As opposed to if you get something nowadays, it is often from a, an Adobe file, like an a, a Illustrator or a PageMaker. No, what's the tool I'm looking for? InDesign for, is thank the you. tool. Thank mm -hmm. you. An InDesign file. And they sold those. And those are authorized reprints, Wizards on Board from it. A lot of the listings would also include like a big blurb from Shannon Applecline, who has encyclopedic knowledge, apparently, of every game supplement that was produced by Watsi in the 90s, which I, I don't necessarily doubt. Um, and these were being sold. And to me, the important part is the sale price for these was well above the sale price for them on drive through RPG. That got me curious because as I was acquiring these Planescape books, I didn't need the copy. I have no problem using the artifacts. Like I have my big leatherette copy of Mage 20th. I use my big leatherette copy of Mage 20th. Uh, part of that is... <laughs> Due to a different project, I, I am reasonably good at bookbinding, and if a book breaks, I can repair it myself. So I don't feel too bad beating up my purple leather copy or something of Mage in Spanish or what have you. So this is something when I saw it happening, I didn't know what the angle was, but I saw that there was a market for these these reprints. So I decided to list the ones I have. I figure I would attempt to recoup it, and what I did was I looked at other listings and sold it for a dollar less. I followed what appeared to be best practices for listing it. Uh, I, I listed it as an authorized softcover reprint. All of those were in the title. Indicate that it was not the original product release in at least three page places. Under the setting area, I listed it as used a reprint and then see description for further details. I included a picture of it to show that it was clearly a book and not the cardboard box copy. I got a few questions where people were like, hey, is this the original? I said, and I answered truthfully, no. And a few people were like, hey, the maps are a little bit biffed up in another copy I got. Is yours like that? Uh, to which I said, yes, because that is one of the shortcomings of taking a 22 by 17 inch map, breaking it into eight by 10 pages because you have a quarter inch margin or whatever around the edge and putting it into a book. So eight by 10 and a half, sorry. So I did this for all my Planescape books and then I did it for my World of Darkness books. I wanted to get all of the Chronicle of Darkness generic supplements, a bunch of them I got as hardback reprints. And then I, I tried to sell those. I was cheaper than everyone else who was also selling it. I set shipping to $4, which in retrospect, I should have made five. Shipping for most of these was $345 or $389 within the US for media mail, plus a dollar for the envelope because I use nice envelopes. So I, I thought that was perfectly transparent. I sold a little bit under $500 in product and I made about an 18% profit margin. On a book per book basis, it varied wildly and the values changed over time. For instance, one of the books and a bunch of the, the World of Darkness ones, I could not move and more or less move them at break even, all costs considered. And on a few, I wound up losing money. So can you explain the process of how you uh, 
would readjust the prices if oh, they sure. didn't sell. Basically, every 14 days, every 14 to 21 days, I would go through, I would check to see if an item had not sold, if there was a competing product. If so, I would go through the same process of beating it by a dollar or sometimes rounding down to the nearest five that was below it or just knocking a few bucks off of it. I also made liberal use of the make an offer feature, which is something eBay has where they say, hey, a bunch of people have showed interest in it but have not bought bid or what have you. You can proactively send them an offer at a lower price. Generally, my minimum there was a 15% price cut. I don't think anyone moves for 10%. That's just my rough feeling, at least for these kind of things. And it took me, a bunch of them moved very quickly. And then the long tail over, so this whole process took me probably about 75 days to move through all the ones that I had gotten, with the exception of two books. I still have a copy of Chronicles of Darkness, Dark Eras, and a copy of Arms of the Chosen for Exalted. Those are the two books that have not, that I have not been able to move yet. Overall, again, yeah, I made a about 18% profit on what I have sold. I guess if you include those two books, that drops probably closer to 10. Those are both being sold for what I paid for them, which means they will be a net loss for me once they move. The interesting thing here is you've taken books that someone could theoretically get cheaper drive through, directly from drive through RPG, and you've just changed the location of where it can be purchased and you're taking a cut of it. That gets into some weird territory for me, but I think there's some interesting implications about what this means about people and how they acquire their game books. The only thing that I will note that seemingly has changed is Noble Knight Games now appears to be listing a lot of reprints again. There was a period of time where they didn't. The notable thing there is they are selling the books at roughly the same cost as you would get them on DriveThruRPG, maybe plus $5 up to. But they are charging like $14 shipping and handling, which eBay does not take a fee off of shipping and handling. So that is how they are doing it, which isn't actually bad because if you were to do the same thing, the minimum price that you can be charged on shipping for drive through RPG is I think six or $7. So that markup in a lot of cases is, is effectively lower and they will combine shipping. So in a certain way they have, they have narrowed that margin and are more or less taking advantage of efficiencies in the drive through RPG bulk mail thing. Uh, one of the things that never made sense to me about DriveThruRPG, which is a company that has worked with Lightning Source, at least in the US, to offer authorized reprints, is that they do not offer media mail shipping if you are getting basically more than four items. It's probably based on weight, so if you're getting a whole bunch of paperbacks or something, that is different. But for instance, if I get a hardcover POD of a core rulebook and two softbacks, if I add a third softback book, I now immediately need to jump to FedEx or UPS or something like that or pay much higher USPS priority. I'm not quite sure why, but that that's how they do it. So... I find it interesting that it is often cheaper to place two orders for three items than one order for six items, depending on what the weight distribution to, is to me. And that is weird. But yeah, uh, yeah, implications, they're a bunch. From the industry side, if we can start there, what does it tell to you? What do you see with your special economist eyes? One of the things that I see with that is that we need, we, the industry need to be better at being where people buy their books. And clearly eBay is a place where people buy their books. Now, the general 
I think assumption is people buy buy used books in that marketplace, but that's not necessarily the case. And it would be an interesting experiment for a company to say, hey, we are going to sell our new books on eBay for the same price or maybe more than we sell them through other distributing systems and see if those sell. I think that is a ethical way of doing this sort of experiment. So one of the things that came up is I was trying to track down a copy of Cortex Prime, the Quora rulebook, Cam Banks & Co. And it was steadily dropping in price. It came onto the market, say, at like 40. And the price was dropping a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. It was on it was on Amazon. And my strike price was uh, $29.95, which I do not feel bad buying cheap RPG books because I buy – it is not something I would buy if it were not that cheap. If it were more expensive, I simply wouldn't buy it. So this is a case where if you sell your good for $1, yes, that is below what you'd like to sell it for. But if it's a dollar in sales, you would not have gotten period otherwise Then in certain volumes and in certain circumstances, I think that can make sense, uh, especially if something's been out for a while. Like when drive through RPG does like a 75% off sale, the people sure. who are buying generally, I, I, I am of the opinion, we're probably not waiting for that sale. Like a huge number of them weren't necessarily. And there are people with some spending money who are like, ah, I didn't want to buy this PDF for 20 bucks, but for four 99, yeah, sure. What's the worst that can happen? And that is free ish money. So, and then it was nominated for the Ennies and the price shot back up again. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so I, I've certainly been hoisted in my own petard by doing that a fair number of times. So we were talking about the impact of, of this sort of reprint marketplace on the industry. And the question was, is this a thing that the industry can kind of use I, I think that's that's a good question. I think the answer is yes. Uh, eBay's fixed fee, like when you stipulate a price, the expenses aren't terribly high. Uh, you're looking at like 15 cents plus 5% or something like that. In comparison, when I sold, when I tried to sell used copy on Amazon, if I was selling a book for less than $5, I lost money on that transaction frequently. Right. If I just use the public facing seller marketplace where, where Amazon charges a $2 plus 35% marketplace fee with the idea that without Amazon, you wouldn't have sold that, which is true, especially if I literally sold it on Amazon. But yeah, I, I think there is no reason not to. Another Kickstarter that I was interested in was Altered Carbon. And it was interesting there, which again, one in any, I don't remember what category it might've been cover design, but still. So I think the Kickstarter core book was 40 or $45. I was seeing a lot of copies for 30 and they were new, which suggests to me that it was people who were on the retailer tier who had bought several copies and were now trying to dump them. My, that is kind of my one concern with the eBay Avenue. There are a few online booksellers that have a physical store presence, but obviously do most of their work through internet sales. And is that a reasonable way of taking advantage of those discounts for Kickstarters? I don't know, because to me, the whole idea is we want to subsidize the experience of, of cultivating a relationship with a friendly local game store. I think, though, there's there's an argument here that that if you are supporting a business that exists in a physical space, even if you are purchasing from them in a digital space and getting it shipped to you, you're still supporting the physical space existing. So I have a, a couple of stores that I frequent 
usually buy from. One of them is a local one to me. One of them is one that used to be local to me. And I will purchase things from them directly through their online store their physical that keeps their physical store running, but I get the stuff delivered to me in the mail. I don't see any difference between that and using an eBay storefront, particularly if it is, again, still supporting that physical store existing. I think that is a completely valid way of, of, of selling and purchasing. I feel the reasonableness of that changes depending on the percentage of gross receipts that are through online sales. So for okay. instance, say you have a storefront and I will use a store where literally the only thing that they actually sell in store are hardback copies of D&D books. And they have a giant warehouse, which you can get to if you really want to. But say 90% of their gross receipts for RPGs are online game sales. Are you still okay with that? This, the physical store still exists. It is still a location where I can go yes, but and potentially rep- play games at and yeah. do other things there. I don't care how I am subsidizing that place existing. As long as it is existing and doing those community building things as well. If if it was a storefront, there is a comic book store near me that does this, that only sells online, but doesn't ever actually open their storefront. That is the problem. Okay. And would you also have a problem if the store did not offer com- opportunities for community play? Like if they did not have publicly available tables and were simply selling it or were selling just that and accessories like dice and what have you? It depends. I, I think... The community aspect is a really important element of a local game store. If they don't have the space for it, that's one thing. But if they have some way of doing that and facilitating it, and I've seen that done in very small spaces, then I think they should, again, in non-COVID times. But, you know, yeah, that should be a thing that happens. And kind of the implicit assumption here is if you are going to go through the trouble of creating a physical retail space, but not actually leverage any of the community making opportunity and attempt to have sufficiently high throughput based on the lower margins of uh, Kickstarter products or being able to buy through Diamond Comics or something like that, then there are easier ways to make money probably. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which is one of the things that came up in this experiment. Would I do this again? Probably not. But does it make sense for the people who buy 15 copies of Planescape Core or Alkadim or Ravenloft to do it? I think at those scales, it does. The, The biggest concern I had was the expected price for a good would change suddenly. And I had no idea why. Over the course of this project, Planes of Law started out being available for like $25. And after I sold my copy, the next cheapest one was $37.99 or something like that. And that moved too. So I have no idea, which suggests, Duh. yeah. And sometimes the opposite would happen. The price would plummet and I didn't know why. I think this idea is an interesting like experiment. That said, I don't know if I agree with it, but I also find myself looking at it going, you are, you're incredibly upfront. People understand that they're buying a reprint. I think about people in the marketplace and I have to wonder, are they unaware of drive through RPG? And if so, is there some sort of assumed stigma if they are aware of drive through RPG? And so they're thinking, I'm going to buy this through eBay. It will be better, even though it is exactly the same product. I don't know, like there's a lot of psychology there, which is an element of economics, but what do you think about those elements? So the big thing to me is you get it way faster, especially during COVID when production lead times were 11 weeks. 
if you got something through eBay, eBay's guarantee to you is if you're saying you're going to ship at these rates to this place, we'll give you a day to get it hammered out. But if they don't have it by then, they get to submit a claim to you, to us and we will pay them out. And then we will, we will come find you. (laughs) So it does have, I think a more trusted provider. So there is that argument. You get it faster. You could argue that it's a better public service experience. You could say that some weird kind of drug running is occurring. If people are using this to like launder eBay gift cards, but I don't, that, that feels like a real small chance. And it's also one of the, things where I think if you Google it, it has relatively good Google foo, especially yeah. if you go to like shopping.google.com. That's another theory that I have. And DriveThruRPG requires its own account. And this is another place that's going to have my credit card information or something like that. So I think there are small justifications for it, but that, that often 35% price difference is just weird to me. Like if you're buying books from a line that you trust and you don't mind doing a little bit of legwork, the margin should at least cover the copy of the PDF that you wanted to. So you could essentially get it, get a everything for free by buying the print plus PDF copy, keeping the PDF and selling the print copy. Which I have done several times on books. And I have, I have no moral issue with that because I still have the, uh, I have still have two copies, right? As it were, or I have the copy that I want, the PDF copy, and then another physical copy that someone that no different than selling a used car to someone after I've done, you know, hanging out in the car, even if I take out like a seat or something like that, like. And you buy the book, you license the PDF, which is the kind of annoying part. And in the US, at least we are protected by the first sale doctrine, which basically says once it's yours, it's yours. It is very hard to come up with a contract that says before you sell this on, you have to do this other thing. Uh, it exists for certain luxury goods and uh, certain uh, specific pieces of uh, trade appliance, but for things that are generally available to the public, no one can stop you from from resale unless there is a licensing agreement attached to it. Certainly don't have a problem with the resale of physical books. Do you consider the process ethical when that guy buys 10 copies and then sells them as clearly labeled reprints? It's this is a real gray area for me. Yeah, what what are the factors that are, that are playing into it? Even if we don't necessarily agree on your outcome, but what are the things that Josh is thinking about when evaluating this? Yeah, one of, one of the the key thing is that you are selling something for more money than what you purchased it for. Now that is not necessarily unethical. However, this is something that, in theory, if you are properly educated on the market, you should be able to find the same product for the price that I paid to get it. It is this gray area when I see like I am buying this in a place where I would otherwise view these books as uh, as the originals, even if you were saying it is a reprint in multiple places. The assumption, I think, for a significant portion of the population purchasing on eBay or similar locations is this is an original version of this game. Those factors to me put this in a real like gray area for an individual seller. This is where it goes back earlier. I don't have much of an issue if a store is doing these sorts of things. I still think it's a little iffy, but it's less iffy because they're trying to produce and keep running a location that becomes a hub of a community. And I think there's value in that that needs to be supported as well. So I don't know. Like, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying when you were first telling me about this, I definitely looked askance and then you explained it. And I looked askance again, but at least I 
can recognize the thought process while I'm looking at scans. Okay. So it sounds like the big factors you're looking onto are both a question of, do you feel that this is enhancing the RPG community, which is why you are less concerned if it is a, a storefront that is doing it. The second is a question of, is it being misrepresented? I feel as if that is low on the scale, partially because no one asked to return it real after they were like, oh, I thought this was a different thing. They may have assumed that that's how it came out originally, but if this is largely being bought by people who had it as a kid and wanted a copy, I don't know how many like teens playing 5e are like, oh man, I've heard cool things about Planescape. Obviously, they were issued in paperbacks, just like nothing is issued in paperback at current through uh, through Watsi that I can think of. I feel as if that's a relatively low concern. The concern of, are you charging more? Yes, but to me, the the market should punish for that. So it becomes this question of why is DriveThruRPG doing such a poor job? Is this a brief period where this works? Like, what is the maximum capacity of this? Because theoretically, as volume on eBay increased and multiple sellers were doing this, to differentiate, you would have to reduce prices and eventually that would converge at the cost of the good. So we'll see if that happens now that there are a few vendors that seem to be doing this again. It is interesting that it was trivial for me to do it for my TSR stuff. It took way longer and the margins were much smaller on the World of Darkness stuff. So it sounds like there is differentiation among the fan base that if you are a World of Darkness... So yeah, to jump in, I think that's a knowledge sort of thing because I think World of Darkness fans, because the folks involved in drive through RPG started at White Wolf and are almost all former White Wolf or currently affiliated with the White Wolf Onyx Path sort of sphere, those folks know about drive through RPG. The TSR folks aren't because they're disconnected from the current marketplace of, uh, of RPGs. And we, we have to admit that drive through RPG has a very strong hold on the market. I wouldn't say they have a monopoly, but they certainly have a strong hold on the market. And I think not being aware of it existing is a key factor for those individuals buying those books. I, I feel as if it does inform us about the nature of the market. I have mo almost no moral scruples with it. Again, if you are uh, charging because you have differential access to a, a sales venue, that that is largely fine by me. I am wondering under what circumstances I would. I think it would be if I received reasonable evidence that people were genuinely mistaking this for the actual product, that would certainly change my calculus on it. But I feel as if so far, at least in what I and other sellers have done, I have exercised due diligence. Am I going to do this again? Probably not. I think this was an interesting experiment when I was doing this clear out. Also, there does seem to be a little bit of market risk in that to get the economies of scale to make this a good use of your time, you probably need to buy 10 to 15 copies of something. Right. And it is hard to maintain a price at a level to justify your time over the course of that sale because you very much have to put the capital up front wait until the product comes in presume that the price will maintain at a reasonable level sell those deal with any difficult buyers that will come through and do it and then recoup your capital and possibly do this again there is nothing preventing anyone else from doing this as well it sounds like what you're describing, though, is similar to what a re retail store has to make a determination on when they're selling either used books or existing books of any form. Like, how many do we order? How many then do we sell at what particular price point? And how many do we maybe hold for a specific sale in the future? 
and then you know interacting with customers long enough to sell all of them so that they make enough of a profit to make it worth the whole rigmarole of being a store. The difference here is the public theoretically has access to HarperCollins as well. And if they're willing to wait a little bit longer, can can get it cheaper. So those are my thoughts on, on that project. Anything else before we uh, talk about other things in the economics of RPG news? Like I said, I think this is an interesting experiment. I think there's value in understanding it. Please don't ever do it again. <laughs> other things that caught my eye in the world of RPG economics news is Stars Without Number is doing a Kickstarter. It is for an offset run. Originally, this was done strictly as a POD. They set it so that more or less that they would need to sell a thousand copies before they would do it. And it is selling for $80 for 324 pages with a printed end sheets, sewn, uh, sewn case binding, bookmarks, ribbons, and so on, glossy cover, full color interior. The thing I find interesting about this is the premium edition is on drive through RPG is a hundred. So this is cheaper and better, presuming you are you are willing to wait. God, I wish OPP did this for the Chronicles of Darkness games. So this is an interesting model. So they're kind of doing it backward yes. from what most companies do. And I I think it's fascinating because they know they're going to make money on these still. They've already built a fan base, but this is this company's first game, correct? Or have they produced any other games before this? Uh, this is the big one I know of that's being produced by Kevin Crawford. Kevin's created a whole bunch of other ones. I don't know what the nature of the other projects were. Looks like, oh, Godbound does not appear to be their first game. This, so this does not appear to be their first offset, but it looks like they are going back to to do one and great power of Kickstarter is not that it allows good ideas to thrive, but it kills bad ideas. And I think that is powerful because that frees you up to do something else. And I would love to see other games that were strictly POD that have a bit of a tail to them that maybe they've made gold or platinum on drive through RPG do a proper offset print run. It makes sense from an economic and from a fan community standpoint, I can Imagine doing two Kickstarters in this mold and having it have some benefit where you do an initial Kickstarter where you're like, we have a fairly low goal. We're going to fulfill everything through drive through RPG. You don't do a backer kit or anything like that. So you're saving money. You're keeping your goal low because you are just producing a PDF effectively and then a, a print on demand copy, which you can do relatively cheaper than you can do an offset if you don't get a large enough group of people to do the offset. It goes gangbusters. You're like, fantastic. We're going to fulfill all of these through drive through RPG. Hey, a year later, we're going to do a second Kickstarter where now we're going to do an offset run. We've already built a community. We've done a whole bunch of marketing. I would be completely behind a company doing that. I would have no problem with that. Yeah. Would you state that at the beginning when you were doing that first POD one? I think so, because you can do it two different ways. So I'm envisioning, envisioning this for a future project where I want to either offer one of two things, initial drive-through RPG fulfillment for everything with an offset run in case we hit a certain level of stretch goal, like, oh, hey, we made $50,000. Now we can afford to do an offset print run. And that ends up being cheaper for us for, and for everybody in the end. Doing it this in this two-stage Kickstarter way, I think would be really good marketing which is the value that I see there. And I don't see any negative to the consumer there because you're having an opportunity to get in early, get a POD copy of the game. That could be it, you're out. 
that's fine. But now you've got a, a name for yourself and three of your friends want to buy a, a, this new offset print copy. Totally cool with that. It's one of those things where I, I don't know, just I don't like PODs. They're just not good enough. And I think I think that for some of the games that we are quite fond of, I feel that there would be a sufficient volume to to justify it. Uh, Mage of the Awakening is an adamantine seller, as are Vampire the Requiem and Werewolf of the Forsaken. So I feel as if those could move. I don't know if you would do a revised and expanded edition or anything like that, and just have twenty pages of new material and maybe fix a few typos that you that, that you had missed or something like that. But it's it's a model that I hope we get to see uh, more. Only reason I can see Onyx Path, this may get too focused, but the only reason I can see them not doing it is because they have a two-tier license issue going there where they have to pay Paradox, who owns the IP as well. And I can see that being a situation if you're the owners of Onyx Path Publishing going, am I going to invest the money in this and make way less than if it was one of my own books. And that's, that's a calculus. You have to yeah. Or alternatively turn. something paradox could do <laughs> right. because right. it's like, well, you already have it. And then you send it to a printer. If only you had a printer. Oh wait, you have printers. I'm curious to see what the numbers for change in the lost were, because that was the first of theirs that, that received a, a proper offset print run. The other note I have is avatar. The last airbender made infinity dollars. Ooh, yeah. 9.5 million dollars is right. Yeah. <laughs> So my question, quite simply, is people say this is going to create a flood of licensed games, despite the fact that there has always been a flood of licensed games. The difference is this one did very well. Why do you think this one succeeded, seemingly, where the best license I could think of for a tabletop RPG was the Star War, and Fantasy Flight had to shut that down? I think the Avatar community is so in love with the property that we can't discount fans of the property just being like, there's anything Avatar related, I'm going to buy it. There's a, a ton of licensed merchandise and the show came back out on Netflix at just the right time to kind of reinvigorate people for this to just be a big thing. I think that's, that is a key factor. Fan uh, nostalgia and love and appreciation cannot be overstated in the Avatar Kickstarter success. That said, the real difference here is this is not a D&D knockoff. And I think from a system existing big out there in the world and actually selling standpoint, this is the first time we've seen a licensed IP like this on Kickstarter. Okay. You know what I mean? Like we have, we have Marvel, we have Star Wars, we have Star Trek, but those games have never been on Kickstarter. So we don't know what their actual sales levels are. We don't know. Maybe Star Trek Adventures is the best-selling game of all time, and we don't know because all of those numbers are internal to Modifius. Seeing this happen in real time on Kickstarter, I think it's an interesting thing, but I don't know if it necessarily tells us anything other than it was in public. It maybe does. By being in public, it also got more marketing and so forth and so on, and that's a big deal, but I don't know. There's some other layers to it, and I'll certainly let you chip in on those, Terry. Yeah, uh, Star Trek Adventures is an adamantine seller on DriveThruRPG, so they're doing good enough. I, I like your comment that w to what of this is the Kickstarter-y nature, that you can see it succeeding and that you have the option to jump on. It, it is 
an interesting feeling to get in on the ground floor of something. I certainly have a stronger sense of investment for things that I kickstarted in as opposed to like, hey, this drops today, buy it for $44.99. The weirdest ones to me are like the Money Cook Games one where there's like a 0% discount for being part of the Kickstarter, which makes sense because you're paying Kickstarter. (laughs) So it can certainly be more expensive, especially for an established property where you know it's going to move. I I have no doubt that when Patolas was going to come out, that Patolas was going to uh, move some product. That's interesting. I think the they were able to do a good job of coming up with doodads to go with it that were really neat. Um, I think without going overboard. Yes. So it's not like they offered uh, a friend of mine is big on board game Kickstarters. And he's like, I don't know why so many games feel compelled to give you hero miniatures. He said that the greatest thing that that does is you can no longer fit the original box within a Kallax, which is the international standard unit for a board game box. (laughs) um, The Ikea Kallax cube. And that is a really good point. Thank you for mentioning that I'm working on a board game as well. I needed to hear that. (laughs) Yep. Uh, the Invisible Sun Cube pretty pretty nicely fits inside of a Calax one, which I like. Same thing with this uh, SDA board cube. So I think those little add-ons were well done. I think the offering a complete quick start to be like, yes, you've never played Powered by the Apocalypse, but I will explain it to you in 35 pages pretty convincingly. Um, the fact that it gives us details on settings and eras that we don't really have a huge amount of information of, it gives a novel content. Content. I wonder how Star Trek Adventures would do with a place that had never been explored before, which I think they recently did with their they expansion. Did. They just released the, the Shackleton, Shackleton expanse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious about that. I also like how they, in Star Trek Adventures, they're like, hmm, everything was fine during TNG. Let's secretly have there just have been a Zen Kathy war that you don't know about. I'm like, sure, good, get in there. So that was certainly interesting. I think a lot of it is Magpie. Um, I don't think they've ever produced a dud. So sometimes when there is a Kickstarter for a property, uh, people are like, yay, Avatar. And I'm like, mm, Magpie. <laughs> so that is my response. Uh, it, likewise, when Thirsty Sword Lesbians came out, people are like, Thirsty Sword Lesbians. And I'm like, Fred Hicks. <laughs> and that is the person there that I trust. So yeah, I think those things came together. I don't know how much of it is the fact that it built on itself. Like if they had just done a retail release of the exact same things, I don't know what the huge difference would have been. It, it would have sold, but I don't think it would have sold quite in the same volume because you wouldn't have had the same energy around it. One of the key things that Kickstarter does is it pr- provides a dead drop date where you're like, to to feel like I'm a part of this zeitgeist, I have to do it before now. If you see a book in a store and you may love Avatar, but you're like, I can come back next week and buy that book. And you're right, you can. You can come back next week and buy that book in retail when it was on Kickstarter three years ago too. But the sense of being there at the beginning is a powerful force and a powerful force in buying decisions. So I think that is a huge factor. Those are my thoughts. I wish the best to Magpie with having this come out in a, a reasonable period of time. I know one of the comments that went around is they're like, there's literally not enough paper from our suppliers to do this, which I get. So I am in no rush. I think I have 37 Kickstarters I am waiting for to be fulfilled. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, um, I'm at 30 right now. So okay. I understand I'm a little bit less than you <laughs> and less RPG ones. I have a couple of comic book ones and things like mm. that in there as well. Nice. But, that question about paper, that is an entire episode on its own, I think. Yeah, and I hope to get to it at some point. I think that would be fun talking about the literal steps. Anything else in the world of product availability or interesting RPG economic discussions that you'd like to talk about now? 
I also want to mention another Kickstarter that I think was really interesting. One of the, uh, this may be an entire episode. You may want to cut this whole section, but there was a, an RPG called the price of coal, which is effectively a, uh, a leftist leaning look at a labor movement issue that, uh, that occurred in West Virginia uh, about a hundred years ago. Now it is interesting to see that Kickstarter is being utilized to tell that sort of labor rights history as well. Um, and I think that is just an interesting note that the price of coal and other games like it allow small creators and other individuals to kind of leverage the same options that bigger companies do to help tell other stories or alternative economic uh, stories within an RPG setting. I think it's interesting. Did you back it? I did back it. Nice. Yes. I hope you get it and you find it enjoyable. At the very least, I will, you know, enjoy that I helped it create it. Yeah. You know? The joke I now have is every time I get a book that I read and never play, I'm like, oh, no, it was a lyric game. Reading the book was the game. That was the <laughs> that was the creator's intent the entire time. And that, that, that reduces some of my moral concern. I am always hesitant for Kickstarters of the forum. You should buy this because we have this attitude about things. I am always concerned that that, that is you being used to conceal the game given the choice between a poorly produced game about an interesting era with interesting supplemental material i would much rather grab a the audiobook if i could <laughs> sure. Sure. um so but that is that is one of my biases going into here that i'm curious about i wonder if we're going to get for instance people who play to an audience and try and create alt-right rpgs and put them through kickstarter or something like that it, that may have already happened if if anyone knows about it, tell me. Yeah, I know they exist out there, whether or not they're being used uh, or sold through a venue like Kickstarter. That is another question that I am almost terrified to ask. And I am looking for something that would be explicitly marketed as such, as opposed to, oh, this is the world you create with these implicit sympathies and you feel that you're being neutral, but in actuality, you're just like recapitulating this notion you have of this false sense of libertarianism that is you thinking that you would have done better had everything that allowed you to succeed with nearly no effort not been in place. Um, and that, that that is basically my definition of a lot of forms of uh, advanced libertarianism. So yeah, I, I am curious as Kickstarter as a venue for political games. Not to indicate that this uh, this game is about a political consideration. Whether or not you consider it political within the uh, the universe of RPGs, fine. I don't. I haven't read it. I, I don't have a refined framework in which to address that. But yeah, I, I think that's certainly something we could we could talk about more in the future. Are there any upcoming releases that you're excited about? Uh, well, currently, I, I don't know. The one thing that is currently on Kickstarter that will be coming out in the future is Apocalyptic Record by Onyx Path Publishing, which is a werewolf book. And I am the werewolf, the podcast guy. So I at least need to like show for that for just a moment. But uh, other than that, no, there's lots of stuff, but nothing that's screaming at me saying, hey, this is going to be cool. I am excited for Monty Cook Games. They are doing a 5e book of planes. So the joke I have about that is sometimes it's nice not to see an author go into uncomfortable territory. Uh, Monty Cook having been responsible for a lot of the text in Planescape, as well as I think with Sean Reynolds and Bruce Cordell, I don't I don't quite remember the specific name. So I, I'm very excited to see that. In all of V5, Eberron and this are kind of the two properties that I am interested in. So if I'm going to get an introduction to it, that would be great. I was really hoping they would also release it for Cypher because currently the only book that I know of that is offered in both 5e and Cypher is Petolus, and that's $150 each 
I mean, it's wow. an 872 page book, so I get it. It may actually be less than that. It may be about the same size as the Mage Core, uh, but it's it's in that neighborhood. And I would love to plunk down the two next to each other and see how you translate back and forth because that question of V5 translation is also, I think, an interesting economic question. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I'd love to see how Vaison ultimately winds up doing with that. That reminds me of one other thing. Haunted West got released in PDF form. Haunted West by Darker Hue Studios. It's a weird horror Western alternate history book. It is nearly 800 pages as well. And that was what made me remember it. And it is it was significantly less than Tolis on Kickstarter. So I am interested to see how that rolls out long-term. It's an excellent book created by an excellent creator. I'm just interested to see what the impacts of that book are going to be on the industry. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. $85 for an 800-page book is real cheap. And if you're interested in contacting us, I am at Terry Robinson on Twitter. And Josh, how about you? You can find me at HLG underscore corporate or at Podcast Werewolf. Nice. Talk to you later.